Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to walk us through this text this morning. Um, Have you ever had an assignment to do that you were absolutely unqualified to do? I remember the first time I really kind of had this earth-shattering moment was when I took a pottery class in high school. Now I signed up for it, not because I care about pottery or classes or high school, but I signed up for it because I had to take a fine arts class, and I thought, this is one that certainly can't assign homework. So I signed up for this pottery class, and I remember we had this ceramics teacher who, just if you want to get a picture of what she was like, just imagine someone who had like a really good time in the 60s, you know, like she's just kind of just a little bit kind of floating as she walked, you know, like she'd always have clay in her hair, like it'd be sticking up a little bit, kind of absent from the body, present with the drugs or something like that. That was kind of what it happened. But she, she would kind of walk around kind of floating a little bit like a, like a cockatoo. And um, it was, but she would sit down, class gather around, she'd slap this pile of clay in the middle of the wheel. Um, she'd center it, get it ready to go, get it spinning. She'd say, now just do it like this. And she would, boom, and there'd be a pot there. It seemed like 15 seconds later, and going like, oh, well, this is easy. I'll just go do that. And you sit down at the thing, and you realize that, like, I can't even plop the clay down right, you know? And it's really frustrating. You get spinning, and the clay flies off, and there's all these problems. And then what happened is she'd come around, and she'd look at you, um, kind of like she's looking through you, you know, because she's kind of a little bit trippy. But she'd go, how is the, are you having trouble? And you're like, don't patronize me. I'm clearly bad at this, you know? And then she'd say, let me help you. And she'd, you'd put your hands on the clay. She'd put your, her hands over your hands on the clay, and she'd get it centered. And then, like, with her hands on your hands, she would show you how to do it. And then with her help, you'd have this great-looking pot. You're going like, oh, I got this this time. This is fine. She'd walk away. She's like, now you finish it. And then, boom, it was ruined, you know? And it was, didn't last very long. But um, she, her help, like, her, her presence versus her absence was the only thing that indicated whether I was able to do what I was supposed to do or not. And I think that is similar to what we're looking at as a church. We talk about in the next 10 years being the best friend that our community has. And some of you um, just may not think very deeply about things and you go like, oh, we can do that, no problem. And other of you are going like, this is nuts, this is crazy, how are we gonna be able to pull this off? And I think that this picture of the fact that we've been giving an assignment to love our neighbors well collectively as a church and to really become a friend to our community that they would seriously miss if we left. And if we think that we can do that apart from God's hands on our hands, we're nuts. We're in bad shape. And this, this idea of prayer, which prayer is connecting with God, it's being present to God, is the essence of what prayer looks like and what prayer feels like. And the last handful of months, um, myself and a handful of other guys on staff here um, at Redemption Gateway, but also across Redemption as a whole, have really been um, confronting our lack of, prayerful, our, our lack of prayerfulness in a pretty powerful way. When I first came on to staff here, um, I would ask about strengths and weaknesses, about different, um, the way that people saw the pastors. And all the pastors, without exception, across all of redemption said, our weakness is prayerfulness. We have a lot of strengths, but we're all bad at praying. And I remember that uh, Luke and I and a couple other guys from other redemption congregations did like this prayer discipleship group where this guy was teaching us as pastors how to live praying lives. Even signing up for that is kind of uh, humiliating as, uh, hey, who would like to sign up for a how to pray class? You're like, well, not me, because I'm a pastor, you know, and I have this thing figured out. And so then we sit in a group, and we're talking, okay, how would you all rate your prayer lives on a scale of one to ten? 
you're like, well, Jesus has 10, so nine. You know, and it's like, no, it's not, no, no. But honestly, what I'm thinking is, well, Judas has one, Hitler has two, so I'm three. You know, that's what I'm thinking, you know. Um, and it feels weird to say that out loud. Uh, and all these pastors went around, and the highest score anybody gave themselves was five out of 10. Well, I guess if I asked all of you, how'd you separate your prayer life scale one to 10? Those of you who haven't been paying attention to your prayer lives might be like, oh, I'm pretty fine. Those of you who've been paying attention would probably be, It'd be a shameful question to have to answer. Um, but we did this little prayer discipleship group once a week. We'd read and pray and read and pray, and we'd press them what it looked like. And at the end of this cycle, um, this uh, 12 weeks thing, um, I felt comfortable saying that I was a 5 out of 10 and not a 3 out of 10. So prayer got a little easier. I felt more connected. But I just want you to know that you're getting a 5 out of 10 here on this sermon on prayer. So, <laughs> like, whatever your expectations were, Chop them in half, five out of 10. That's what this is gonna be. But over the course of this time, as we, as the pastors on staff, myself personally, we've been pressing into what it looks like to become praying people and to really actively live in such a way that I need the hands of God on my hands if I'm gonna do anything of value. Uh, What does it mean for us to pray? Here's kind of the big idea that we're gonna talk about today. So prayer is connecting with God and prayer is attentiveness, uh, honesty, and the Holy Spirit. It's paying attention, it's not pretending, and it's God making good out of our mess. It's attentiveness, honesty, and Holy Spirit. And that's my heart for us as Redemption Gateway, that as we pray, we would pay attention, we'd see the pain, we'd feel the pain, we'd not pretend we don't see it, we'd not pretend we're better than we are, but that we'd trust the Holy Spirit to do something with the prayers that we offer. So let me pray for us this morning, and then I'm gonna walk us through where we're going. God, I pray that we can deal honestly with ourselves this morning, that we can admit uh, our gaps, admit our ways in which we are not where we should be, and that we'd have the security of doing that because we know that the only reason we have access to you anyway is because of grace. Amen. Amen. All right, so here's... So this is a big idea, attentiveness, honesty, Holy Spirit, but what I'm going to kind of do is I'm going to walk through six obstacles to our connecting with God. The first obstacle is inattentiveness, not paying attention. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad sat me down and had these like animal pictures and he would show like the way the zebra's ears perked up when they heard noises and how their face would turn and they'd listen and it was clear when the zebra was being attentive versus not attentive based on the attention that was given. Um, we tend to be inattentive to God. He's speaking, he's present, he's with us. Our ears are down, we're not paying attention. We live as functional atheists. Have you, atheists. Have you ever been in a room with someone that you love who just is not paying attention to you and you want them to? Are you married to me or to your phone? It's annoying. It's frustrating. Uh, you go, just be present with me. Show up. Pay, be, be attentive to me. Um, show, showing up and being present is the most basic thing here. And so I think most of us, the reason that we're bad at praying is we're just inattentive to the fact that God is with us everywhere we go. One of the promises that Jesus gives us at the very end of his ministry here on earth is, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I think that most Christians would say, yes, I certainly believe that. And then most Christians would say, I certainly don't function in that belief. Really, I think that I'm with you sometimes when I remember that you're around. How much do you function in that, that he's with you always? 
because I think we're inattentive to the fact that he's with us, that creation is charged with the presence of God, that God is not far off, that left to our own devices, we are hopeless, but we are never left to our own devices because God has promised to be with us. Now, the reasons that we're inattentive all the time is because it's painful to be attentive. You start paying attention. Uh, you start to feel things that are uncomfortable. You start paying attention. You see things that are uncomfortable. Usually what, kind of, what I see happens is people are inattentive, then they start paying attention, and then they start getting really anxious because there's all this stuff to worry about. And most of the time, I think then we have that anxiety and we go like, oh, I shouldn't feel anxious because I'm a good Christian and we shove it and then we go back to being inattentive because you can't be anxious when you're not paying attention. <laughs> you just numb out with whatever thing you got. But really, I think the trajectory is, is we pay attention, we see things to be worried about and we pray those worries and we invite God into them and we're present to him in the middle of that. We don't pray our anxiety away, rather we pray our God into our anxiety. This is what Eugene Peterson says. He says, prayer is being present to the personal presence. God is a person, and he is present. Are we present to him? What does it take for you to be present to someone in your life that you love? Putting away distractions, focusing, undivided attention. God's a person. He's not, you, you love him like you love other people. You show up, you pay attention, be present. For that reason, one of the prayers I pray most often, and I mean multiple times a day, every day, all throughout my day, is this prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. All the time. The more I find myself praying this prayer, the more I find myself being attention to God's presence. That I believe that you're with me, help my unbelief that I don't believe you're with me. That we have this part of us that's full of faith and part of us that's still in the flesh, and we're constantly doing this battle between paying attention to God and not paying attention to God. And so... Today, I'm driving into church to talk about prayer, which I feel like I'm bad at. And so, I, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's not my words ever. It's always been the Spirit. Help me believe that. I believe that. Help me believe that. I'm sitting there taking communion, feeling like God's far off. I believe, help my unbelief. Walking up on the stage to preach, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That I'm inviting God into the tension that I feel rather than just kind of staying inattentive. So if you pray this on a regular basis, you'll find that your attention grows and you're able to pay attention to God more in pretty meaningful ways. The second obstacle to prayerfulness, a second obstacle to connecting with God is self-confidence. Self-confidence. See, I think that um, people will talk to me on, on a fairly regular basis and they'll say, I'm struggling with feelings of inadequacy. And most of the time, None of you are going to come talk to me about your problems anymore. Is I say, good. <laughs> because you are inadequate. So feeling inadequate is sanity. I think most of us, we struggle with feelings of adequacy. I got this, God. Stay out of my business. You see... We as humans were created to be derivative dependent beings on God the Father. We, were always, we were, have a designed inadequacy apart from the presence of God. And so when we walk around feeling confident apart from God, we walk around feeling adequate by ourselves, what happens is we start to feel inadequate as a way of crashing and burning with reality called you are not enough by yourself. I spoke at our high school camp a couple months ago. How many of you feel like you're not enough sometimes? Hands go up. 
good. <laughs> oh, gosh. But I think that that's a biblical understanding of the fact that humans were made to be dependent on God. And as soon as we start feeling self-confident or adequate apart from the presence of God, we're actually no longer living in reality and we're becoming crazy. And so our self-confidence erodes us. One of the things I've found too is that people who are in a season of serious prayerlessness, I'm struggling with prayer, a lot of times what happens is you've gotten into a position in your life where you are fine with going through the motions because you kind of got your life under control. I got this. I'm in the service role. I had the initial kind of nervousness of doing the service role, but now it's easy, it's no problem, and I'm not worried or anxious about it, so I don't really pray about it anymore. My life's going pretty well, not much to pray through, not much anxiety, not much stress, I'm good. The people who I talk to who are really growing in their prayer lives in meaningful ways are always people who are beyond their comfort zone. Either they've stepped out in faith to serve others in a way that's costly, or they're suffering in ways that are inexplainable. All of a sudden, our illusion of self-sufficiency is shattered, and we have this anxiousness of vulnerability, we have to decide to either become numb or to pray. One of the turning points that I've experienced in my prayer life was seeing how Jesus regularly prayed. In Luke, Jesus is described like this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and he taught in their synagogues. That Jesus, that God needs God. Jesus needs the Holy Spirit. That in the flesh, God withdraws to pray, to connect with God so he can re-engage. That to fight temptation, to be led by the Spirit, to teach in the synagogues, God in the flesh needs the power of God. And if I think that I can do anything apart from God, that's insane because God needs God and I'm just a human. Do you think that you're more powerful than Jesus? If so, don't pray very much. One of the things I think is vital, you might be going, I'm pretty prayerless. I haven't really been like pressing into God in prayer in a meaningful way. Examine your comfort zone and say, how firmly planted in it are you? Because sometimes it takes suffering for us to get pulled out of that. Sometimes it takes steps of faith and courage to get us pulled out of that. One of the things we have coming up, we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks, is these five commitments we're asking the church to make to help us become the best friend the community has in the next 10 years. What will it take? It will take a grip of people doing this, coming, going, inviting, serving, and giving. Some of you are going, I'm not in a position where I could do that. I understand that, that's fine. But some of you are in a position where you're going, I already got those things nailed. I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. I'm fine. But what I wanna challenge all of us to do is to ensure ourselves that we are doing something that is at least two steps outside of our comfort zone, two notches beyond our ability to take credit for what we got going on, three or four steps down the path from I got this. You might say, you know, you know what I'm good at? I'm good at handing out programs. Sweet, that's fine. Keep doing that. Find something that challenges you, that causes you to worry and be stressed that maybe I can't do it, and God will meet you in that and teach you how to pray. I'm in a comfortable position in my RC. Maybe you need to lead one. I can never mentor students. Maybe you should. Not necessarily because you have something to offer, but because you need to learn to be helpless. You need to crucify your self-confidence. 
one of the things we have coming up in the spring as we prepare to being in our new building, we're gonna need to double everything, lots of more people leading, lots more people volunteering. One of the temptations we face as a people to say like, if we have enough people doing enough things, we'll be fine. And so this semester, um, this spring, we are purposefully devoting ourselves to prayer in a more strategic way. Um, like for example, you might be going, I just need help to, to do this. Our men's and women's studies this spring are studying prayer. Similar to the experience that Luke and I went through as this kind of like prayer discipleship group thing with guys from other congregations. Some of our pastors are doing that right now. We're inviting all the men and women to be a part of similar things that our pastors went through as far as these prayer cohorts where we learn how to pray where we're in each other's lives. So Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, men and women are studying prayer this coming spring as we gear up for and prepare for um, getting into the new building. Because if we don't purposefully remind ourselves that we are not independent of God and that we are needy, helpless people, we will tend to drift towards self-confidence and say, look at us, we really organized this transition well. Pat ourselves on the back, look at us go, what a great church. But if we, I'm not saying don't do that work because we need to do that work, we're gonna do that work. But also, we need to have a, a posture of learned helplessness where we invite God and meet with him. So if you're going, I just need experience or reps and I want training on this, do our prayer study um, on Tuesdays this coming spring, starting January 5th. You can sign up for this online right now if you go to our website, mark it down, take notes. If you're bad at praying, if you're you know, less than a nine out of 10, you should probably do that. I don't know, um, you might not be able to, but go for it. I went through something like that, I'm gonna be part of it again. You should go for it, sign up for that. So self-confidence, we need to get rid of that. That's an obstacle to our prayer. Um, learn helplessness. The third obstacle we have is our disordered desires. We want the wrong things. This is what our text is actually talking about. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The key question here is what do you want? What do you wish? Because if you're anything like me, I read this verse the first time and I go, this is nonsense because I ask for things all the time and I don't get them. This verse is a lie. Um, the Bible's probably not infallible. I shouldn't trust it. God doesn't exist. Faith is nothing. And that's kind of like the trajectory here. If you buy to me, ask my words, whatever you wish, it'll be going for you. If that doesn't happen, no, I'm out. I'm out. Got nothing. The question we need to ask is, if we abide in Jesus, what will we wish for? What will we want? If we are seeping in and steeped in Jesus' word, if we abide in his word, what will we want? Do you have any desires that are disordered? You know, Thanksgiving is kind of a key moment for this. You know, it's kind of like this is like the cycle of Thanksgiving where you go, look at all this food. Freedom is doing whatever you feel like. Eats all the food. Shame and self-hatred. That's like the, uh, the cycle. You know, now I can't sleep, you know. Oh, why'd I do it to myself? I trusted my desires, right? Uh, so much so that I regularly overeat at night and then I can't sleep because my stomach hurts. And there's a Bible verse about this. My, my lovely wife actually made a sign um, for me at my request. She's not shaming me. I'm shaming myself. So this is what it says. This is Ecclesiastes 5.12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So that's in our kitchen by our pantry. And I go like, I want to eat. Do I actually want to eat? Because right, we all have disordered desires. We think, oh, this is promising freedom. I'll just do it. And then you do it and you're like, ugh. That which promised freedom prom actually delivers on bondage. 
In our current cultural moment, there is no space for this type of thinking. Our collective culture around us says, if you want something, have it. Do you desire something? Do it. Follow your heart. Do what feels right to you. And they actually say that this is a matter of freedom. Freedom is doing what you want. But actually what it does is actually bondage. It's, it's saying that you are enslaved to your desires. You need to do what you want to do. Whereas Jesus comes and says, you don't need to do what you want to do. You can be free from your desires. And even you can question your desires. Do you have a healthy dose of skepticism about what you want? This is actually a huge theme in the book of John. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth He asked this question, what are you seeking? What are you wishing for? What are you hoping for? What do you desire? Kind of setting the tone in that in John. Jesus is gonna be dealing with what we're striving for. He's gonna be dealing with our desire. And the first time he asks it, the disciples don't actually answer. They ask another question. What are you doing later? (laughs) Kind of like dodging the question. How how often do you feel like that? What do you really want? And you go like, I'm not sure what I want. Not clear. Or if I am clear on it, what I, if I'm really honest about what I really want, I know that it's gross. I know that it's lazy. I know it's self-serving. I know it's dehumanizing to others. So I'm not going to tell you what I want. I'm just going to polish it up. But by the end of the book of John, John 20, Jesus asks again, whom are you seeking? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth, where is he? We have these disordered desires, but God is actually working with us to shape our desires so that we actually want God, that we want more of him, proximity to him, intimacy with him, knowledge of him, closeness to following him. Do you want that? Because all of us are a mixed bag on what we want. Probably, if you're, if you're, especially if you're a Christian, Probably some of the times you want evil things and some of the times you want holy things. But the message of this in John 15 in particular is, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish. That later on he says, this is my commandment, these are my words, that you love one another, that you love like I love. That if we really want intimacy with Christ, we will want to love one another, we want to love other people. See, all the time we ask for things and we pray for things, which may be good, may be bad. God, give me an opportunity to share my faith. God, change my kid's heart. God, give me the opportunity um, to be involved in this, fu- this promotion situation. God, change my situation. None of those prayers are bad, but most basically what's going on in this text, it's saying that if you ask, if you wish what Jesus wishes for us, if you ask God, give me an opportunity to love, he will give you an opportunity to love. The prayer that God will always answer with yes is this, give me a chance to love my neighbor as myself. The problem is, is that it's a dangerous prayer because it will be expensive. Financially, emotionally, on your calendar, it's a dangerous prayer. God, give me a chance to really love people like you love people. And be prepared to get out your wallet and open up your calendar and open up your home and get out of your comfort zone. But when we talk about being the best friend our community has, that's it. It's a lot of people loving their neighbors as themselves. Do you ask God for this? God, give me an opportunity to love. Help me see the chances to love. Because if you're abiding in Christ, that will be our desire. I want to love like Christ loves, no matter the cost. 
Here's the problem when you start examining your desires is that you realize that they're terrible, mostly, and that you don't really want to love people. You mostly just want to be comfortable and retire early and collect seashells on the beach or something. You know, That's what you really want. And so the second prayer I pray the most often, first I pray, I believe, help me unbelief. The second prayer I pray the most often all throughout my day is this. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I notice my disordered desire. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think evil thoughts. I look at evil things. I see an opportunity to love. I let it pass me by. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. The early monks prayed this all day long. Whenever they found that they were out of touch with God's presence, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because the best mercy he can give us is the gift of his presence. If you prayed those two things, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, if you begin a habit of praying those all day long, you will become more attentive. So God's interested in giving us opportunities to love. The question then is, what happens when we refuse those opportunities? Thanks, but no thanks. A fourth obstacle to our prayer life is that we refuse to love. That God gives us people to love, says, here's an opportunity to love like me, and we squander it. We say, pass, no thanks. We say, I'm not really interested. And I'm going to share with us two verses here that are actually threats slash more positive way of saying that is promises that come with consequences. Um, that God, what happens when God gives us people to love and we just say, not interested? <clears throat> So here's 1 Peter, what Peter says. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so living with your wives in an understanding way involves taking perspective. It involves um, self-awareness. It involves attentiveness. It involves listening. It involves... Um, having margin to actually live with and be with. But the most basic thing is it takes you love your wife. That's what this is. It's, it's understanding her. Not understanding all women. I saw this stupid bumper sticker the other day. It said, the more I find out about women, the more I like trucks. And I thought... <laughs> I hope you're single, you know. That's what I thought. You don't need to understand women. You understand your wife listen to her, be present to her. Some of you men, the reason that your prayer life isn't flourishing is because you're refusing to love your wife. God has given you someone to love and you won't be present to her, you won't listen to her, you won't serve her, you won't understand her, you won't be curious with her, you won't show up for her. And so God shoves his fingers in his ears and says, why would I give you another opportunity to engage in my mission? Faithful and little, faithful and much. Here's another example. Those of you who aren't married or who are women, you're not off the hook either. Um, this is the book of Isaiah. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That if you are actively perpetuating systemic 
injustice, or if you are actually one of the people who is doing evil in power, God is not listening to your prayers. Similarly, if you refuse to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to engage in God's mission to heal the world, if you refuse to participate in God's works of love in the world, God is going, not listening. God will not let us deceive ourselves into thinking that we can use prayer to avoid responsibility. And if God has given us something to do and refused to be a part of it, why would, we're dishonoring his word already. Sometimes people will come in and say, hey, um, I'm really praying about whether I should stop cheating on my husband. And I say, well, your first step is to stop praying about it and to stop it. <laughs> You can pray for the courage to stop. You can pray for the faith to stop. You can pray for the resolve to stop. You can pr- we don't pray about whether you should or shouldn't stop. Hey, I'm praying about whether I should love my neighbor or not. Stop it. Love your neighbor. You don't need to pray about whether to do that or not. Again, pray for courage. Pray for power. Pray for ability. Pray for dependence in the middle of it. But we don't pray. Like, God's not going to let us use religious prayer stuff to avoid our responsibility. I think one of the reasons why people are so cynical about prayers is anytime there's like some major traumatic thing that happens in the world, politicians offer their thoughts and prayers. You're in a position to do something. I'm not saying I know what they should do. But when God goes, you know what the job is. Like, I know a lot of people who are just sick and tired of thoughts and prayers. And as a, as a supplement or as a, uh, not supplement's the wrong word, as an excuse of avoiding action. We can pray ourselves into action, but we shouldn't pray instead of taking action. All right. Fifth one is cynicism. It's a big one for me. You know, in cynicism, you see through things, you're like, eh, whatever. I think there's two reasons why Christians can be cynical. Um, the first one is that we actually kind of, I've been, our minds have been conquered by secular naturalism, that we really think that nothing matters, and we really think that um, God's so far off he's disconnected, or God's so far off he's not really paying attention, or even like in a bad theological way, we think that like what will be will be, que sera, sera, and we think that we're talking about God's sovereignty, but really we're talking about some type of fatalistic, deterministic system. What's the point of praying? God's sovereign, he's already decided what's gonna happen. That is unbiblical, that is far from the picture that's given us in scripture. So a lot of times we're cynical because of bad theology or because of like our weird naturalistic, Darwinistic tendencies. Another reason you might be cynical is because of the trauma and pain in our life. I prayed and what I was going through hurt so bad that the only real solution I had was to numb myself. I prayed and God didn't show up like I thought he would. I prayed and I'm still in this mess. I prayed and this person's still suffering. I prayed and so my, God's clearly not listening. My prayers don't matter. In both situations, we become cynical um, and we disbelieve that we have a good father in heaven who's interested in listening to our prayers. And if that's you in the room, I want you to know very clearly that you are not alone in that to the point in which multiple authors of scripture voice similar cynical thoughts. For example, in the book of Lamentations, Israel is in exile, they're being pummeled, it's not going well. And the author says this, you have wrapped your, this is him praying, you have wrapped yourself in a cloud so that prayers, no prayers can pass through. 
God, you're so far off. I'm like, these prayers are bouncing off the clouds. That's a cynical position. But yet it's recorded in scripture as an example to us of how to pray. The point is, is if you're cynical, pray your cynicism. God's not threatened by your cynicism. I want us to be in a position as a church where rather than when we have these negative emotions and painful difficulties and cynical ideas, rather than just shoving them or ignoring them, rather than just saying like, I'm just going to pretend that's not there, rather than um, just numbing up and just saying, you know what, I'm just not going to pray, that we take that cynicalness, we take that skepticism, and we offer it to God and say, God, here's how I feel, here's how I'm doing. Even then, sometimes you have the psalmist who's praying these things that are just like, you're... You've forgotten me. Why would I keep praying? But yet, when we offer our doubts to God in prayer, he doesn't necessarily promise to just remove our doubts. He doesn't necessarily promise to just remove our anxiety. But he shows up. We might not always see it. We might not always feel it. But he's not intimidated by our position or by our perspective. Paul Miller says this, the movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything's under control. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control. Little is possible. When positive, encouraging Christian culture fails you, reality breaks in, we become cynical. That's the natural, cynical, cynicism is the natural outflow of naive optimism. The last obstacle we have here is feeling incompetent. Um, I feel stupid when I pray, I say dumb things when I pray, and so I'm just gonna not pray. And there's some element of wisdom to that. Proverbs says, even a fool looks wise when they keep their mouth shut, you know, and so something we could all use, especially on social media a little bit, you know, I'm looking at all of us, you know, keep your mouth shut, you look a little wise. Um, but in prayer, we feel dumb, so we don't say anything. Uh, we have this shame instinct to hide. I won't be seen in my ignorance or my incompetence, so I'll just not show up. I'll just keep it in. And the beauty of this, you know, this incompetent instinct is uh, that there are certainly people dumber than you in the Bible. <laughs> and they pray all the time. They say dumb stuff. And God's not, God never tells them to shut up and get it right. He says, oh, thanks for coming how you came. Thanks for coming honestly. For example, Peter, um, the rock, uh, the apostle, he says dumb stuff to Jesus all the time, and Jesus doesn't shame him for saying dumb stuff. He just kind of meets him where he's at and works with him in his honesty. So here's some of the dumb thing Peter said. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. Peter took him aside. Hey, God, come here. To rebuke him, Peter's rebuking Jesus. Safe word. You know, like, it's safe to say when you're rebuking God, you're about to say something dumb. You know, that's, that's okay. <laughs> Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Another time, Peter says something dumb. He came to Simon Peter, about to wash his feet. And he says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards, you will understand. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. It's like 30 seconds later, Peter's proved stupid, right? That's like... That's pretty clear. So the reason I'm highlighting these is that Peter says theologically false, contextually ignorant, 
potentially offensive things to Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He answers him. He says, I hear what you're saying, but let me help you. That Jesus brings his unfiltered honesty. He doesn't say like, hey, Peter, next time when you open your mouth, don't be so dumb. He, he listens to Peter, he hears him, he, he, he treats him with a sense of dignity and then corrects him. When we bring God our honesty, it gives him something to work with. When we bring God our pretending, polished up nonsense, God can't work with our false self. He works with us as we really are. Similarly, we see in the Psalms, the psalmists pray, these script, prayers in scripture, things that are theologically false. Did God really wrap himself in a cloud? No. But that's how, this, that's how the author felt, and so they said that to God. Does God really hide his face from people? No. Is God forgotten about people? No, but the psalmist prayed these things that are honest, and they're, they're praying what is their experience. And so God works with us in our honesty. So if you're kind of not, not praying because you're afraid of saying dumb things, I want, you to say, I want you to hear me clearly. You'll probably say dumb things, and that's fine. God's not intimidated by your lack of theological accuracy. He's not going to say, nice prayer, next time get a PhD in theology and then try again. That's not how God treats us. But we bring our mess, we bring our inaccuracy, we bring our, our honest sense of emotion and God works with us as we are. This is why I feel confident praying. It's because I know that I have the Holy Spirit because we do not know what to ask for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. They don't even know what to ask for, but I just ask, and I know that the Spirit understands my heart, and the Spirit understands the heart of the Father, and He's interceding for me, that my messy, honest, disorganized, theologically inaccurate, technically false, wrongly desired prayers, the Spirit is the one that enables me to be heard by the Father clearly. Do you believe that no matter what comes out of your mouth in honesty and prayer, that you have a Holy Spirit who, because of the grace offered by the blood of the Son, is translating the garbage you say and making it sound like this beautiful prayer to God the Father? That you might be uh, full of stuttering and with a childlike vocabulary and inarticulate beyond measure, but yet the Spirit translates what you say and makes it pleasing to the Father. So you don't have to fear saying dumb things. Charles Spurgeon says this, true prayer is measured by weight, not by length. A single groan before God may have more fullness of prayer in it than a fine oration of great length. I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm overwhelmed. <sighs> One of those aimed at God is better than paragraphs that just go on and on and on. The biggest fight my wife and I ever got on was when we were doing our registry for our wedding, mostly because I thought it was dumb and she thought it was important. That's why. That's kind of the source of the tension here. And part of it is you're standing there at Bath and Body or whatever it's called. I know, sorry. <laughs> and there's a wall of spatulas. And I wanted to be like, think that one next. You know? But no, there's a discussion about the spatulas, what this one does, what that one does. And I'm going like... Look, I lived with my parents, and they parented me, so I don't know what I need. And then I lived with four guys, and we just had peanut butter and honeys, and I just need one knife. That's all I need. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need, I don't know what, 
this whole householding thing is. I don't know what I need to ask for. I don't know what's going on here. And so she was taking it very seriously, and she had a better sense of what I needed than, than I thought. And we'd go to the toaster ovens, and there's like seven options for toaster ovens. And I'm like, cooks your food, cooks your food, cooks your food, overthinking this. You know, pick which one, and we'll be fine. And I didn't know what to ask for. And it was, it was stressful trying to figure out what I wanted and what I needed, because I didn't know what I wanted, didn't know what I needed. And so the whole, anyway, we had to call it a day and try again tomorrow. That was kind of... My fiance put me on timeout, like, we're going to try this again tomorrow, you know, and when you're ready, we'll try it again. And it was kind of, I'm like, whatever. And so I had to, like, get over my attitude and whatever. But So we asked, asked for all these things, and we got a lot of stuff, and half of it we use, half of it we don't use, because we didn't know what to ask for. And then, but here's the beautiful part, is I had a pastor at my previous church who organized this group of, like, 20 people to buy us all the stuff we didn't ask for, what we should have asked for. Right, like all the imperishable items um, for our cabinet, these little things that like apparently you need to make a household run. I probably don't even know what they are still because I was like, oh sweet, now I don't even think about this. And so this group of 20 people brought over to our house these like bags of stuff that I didn't even know, like I don't know what these things are, but apparently I need it because they knew what I should have been asking for even though I didn't ask for it. And that is similar to the role of the Holy Spirit in our prayer life, that we don't know what to ask for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words because the Spirit knows the mind of the Father. And the Spirit helps us ask for things that we should be asking for. And when we fail to ask rightly, he translates our prayers and helps us ask for what we should be asking for. And so because of this, this is why I feel like this is a helpful thing to hang my hat on for prayer, that I pay attention I see pain, I see opportunities, I pay attention internally, I pray honestly what I see, what I sense, what I feel, but it's the Holy Spirit who takes my mess jobbled up things and turns it into beautiful prayers that are effective that the Father listens to. And so my heart for us as Redemption Gateway when we think about prayer is not that we try harder, not that we do better, not that we pray more eloquently, not that we um, just are clean ourselves up in our prayer lives, but rather that we come more honest, that we come more dependent, we come with a greater sense of, here's my mess, Holy Spirit, use it. And I think if we do that, prayer will become easier and less of like this chore we have to figure out how to do it right. The hands of the potter are with us, guiding our steps and our prayers. Let me pray for us. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, we're sinners. Help our prayers feel easier. I pray that we can trust your spirit to use our honesty and use our attention. In the name of the Son, we pray, amen.